Thank you for downloading the Two Cities Church podcast, where we are pushing back darkness by spreading the good news of King Jesus. And now, here is this week's message from Pastor Jeff Struker. We have been studying through the book of John in the Bible. We are almost at the end of the book. We're in John chapter 19 today. And if you're at home and you've got a paper Bible, you can flip open there. But if you have our app, we've already put the scriptures, we've already put the outline right there in the app. What we're actually going to read today is about the funeral of Jesus. Now, I want you to think about it for just a second. I mean, he didn't get a funeral like you and I would think about a funeral with a casket and a headstone and all of that. Basically, this thing was just hastily thrown together. There's only a couple of people that are at the cross after Jesus' death, and they have to be really quick about this because the sun is about to go down, and when the sun goes down, Passover starts. And if you touch a dead body on Passover, you can't take part in this biggest celebration of the year. So think about this with me for just a second. The passage that we're going to read from the Bible. It seems like this is the most obscure, humble, insignificant circumstances imaginable. Like he doesn't get a headstone. He doesn't get a casket. He doesn't have full military honors. He doesn't get any of the stuff that you and I would normally associate with a funeral, which is kind of shocking if you think about it. Because Jesus is the single most important human being to ever walk on planet earth. He has access to all of the world's wealth at his fingertips. He has all of the power of God available to him. He's the most important human to ever step on planet earth. And when we read about this funeral today, it's a mess. It's actually a big letdown. And there's a couple of players in this passage in the Bible today that I want us to focus on. But the truth is, people will go out of their way to go visit the grave sites of somebody very, very important to them. Maybe it's a very significant celebrity that had a big impact on you, and you'll go visit their gravesite. Maybe it's a world leader, and you'll go out of your way to go visit those gravesites. But the chances are, it's a regular person that's part of your family, a loved one that's a really, really big part of your life, and you'll go visit that gravesite. Jesus' tomb is obscure. In fact, there's still arguments to this day about where exactly this tomb is, but his burial site becomes the most well-traveled tomb on the planet. His tomb really becomes a tourist destination. I don't mean the word tourist in any bad way today. I just want you to understand it's not the headstone. It's not the casket. It's what that tomb represents, who that tomb represents that really makes it important. And in just a second, I'm going to read for you the funeral. I'm putting air quotes around this. The funeral of Jesus. He has just given up his life. The Bible uses very specific language. Nobody killed him. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Jews. He was on the cross and he chose to give up his spirit, give up his life. The Roman soldiers come by and they are certain that he's dead because we're professionals. We kill a lot of people and we know what a dead man looks like. And just to prove it, we'll puncture him in the side and the blood and the water pours out. 
Now everybody's gone home, and two players show up on the scenes. And this is where the story picks up. We're in John chapter 19. I'm going to read a few verses, and then we're going to take a look at the two guys that these verses describe. John 19, starting in verse 38. After this, Jesus is dead. John is an eyewitness. He says, I saw it with my own eyes, and I'm writing it down so that you would believe. After this, a guy that we've never heard of before, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because of the fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body, remove his body from the cross, and do something honorable with it before the sun goes down. And this is fascinating. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took his body away. Second player at the scene. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night. Remember back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus is a very significant religious leader, but he also is scared, scared of what people will think if they see me with Jesus. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, John chapter 3, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 Roman pounds of myrrh and aloes. They took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths, with fragrant spices, according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it, and they placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. In other words, we got to get in, get this done, and get out, and we also have to ceremonially cleanse ourselves before the sun goes down. Now, what I want to do for a few minutes is I want to focus on the characters that the Bible describes for us in this passage. The first character is this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. This is the first time his name shows up for us in the Bible. We don't know a whole lot about this guy. We have no idea his background. But if you were to read the other books of the New Testament, Matthew tells us this guy is very wealthy. Now, Matthew would know because he's a tax collector, probably saw his tax records, and Matthew says, this guy is a pretty important dude because of his wealth. Mark tells us that this guy is also a religious leader and that he has some power in the land. And then Luke tells us a little bit more about him. Luke tells us this is a good dude with a good heart. And just to make sure that you don't misunderstand. Luke says, Joseph of Arimathea, although he was part of that religious council that decided whether or not Jesus should live or die, Luke tells us Joseph wanted nothing to do with murdering this innocent man. But John tells us something different about Joseph. John tells us that he was actually a follower of Jesus which is no small thing if you consider his wealth and his power and his position in society. But John also, and I don't think this is a footnote about Joseph. This is a really big deal to John. John tells us he was not only a disciple, but he was a secret disciple. And he was a secret disciple because he was afraid of what other people might think if they found out I'm a follower of Jesus. And you may be sitting there right now thinking to yourself, well, what kind of a guy would do that? I mean, if you really believe in Jesus, you ought to believe in him all the way. You ought to come out of the closet and say it. Well, 
Keep in mind that if he were to be vocal about his faith, it would cost him everything. His money, his position, his power probably would cost him his life. And the proof is, where are the rest of the disciples right now? Because they're nowhere around. They know what Joseph knows. If people find out that I am associated with Jesus, the same thing that happened to Jesus is going to happen to me. So at this point, Joseph hasn't made it public that he's a follower of Jesus. At least until after Jesus is dead. Because it takes big courage to go to Pilate and to say, hey, um, I know he's dead, but can I do something with that body? And just so you know, in Jesus's day, Pilate was making a spectacle of Jesus. It was supposed to be a lesson for everybody. Don't do what that guy did or what happened to him is going to happen to you. He claimed to be king of the Jews, and I even nailed it on a sign above his head while he was hanging on the cross, which means it's almost unheard of for Pilate to give permission for somebody to take the body and take care of it. Little alone for a guy who claimed to be king, that was high treason. So the fact that Pilate agrees to this thing is no small deal to John. And in, in essence, I think this is Jeff's personal opinion, but I think this is Pilate's way of saying, I really do believe this guy was innocent. And I was backed into a corner, and these Jews, these Jewish priests, uh, you know, they manipulated the circumstances so I didn't have a choice. I had to pronounce judgment on this guy, but the next thing that I can do for him is at least let him have an honest, a noble burial. So he gives Joseph of Arimathea permission at this point to go bury him. And typically, when they buried a Jew, this was Jewish customs of the day, they would take the body down, they would wrap it in some spices, they would wrap it up in some cloth, and they would lay the body in a tomb. This was all very temporary. Now, this tomb is pretty important. In fact, we'll talk about why this new tomb out of rock with nobody buried in it is important enough for John to tell you about. But I just want to pause for a second. I want you to imagine that you're standing right next to Joseph of Arimathea when he takes care of Jesus' body. What do you think is going through Joseph's mind right now? I mean, is he afraid that people are going to see what I'm doing and they're going to associate me with Jesus and I'm going to lose everything? Is he frustrated and disappointed like I wanted to do something to stop this from happening, but I couldn't stop it and now look at what's happened. An innocent man, not only an innocent man, but I believe he really was a king. A king has just died a murderer's death. But also, was he confused? I, I don't get it. If he really was the son of God, how did it come to this? And why would God let this happen to his son? What do you think is going through Joseph's mind while he's taking that body down and while he's preparing that body to put it in a tomb that's really close by? Because you got to start to wonder what would be going through your mind if you're standing there and watching this for the first time. Fear, frustration, confusion, anger, all of the above. I think Joseph is sitting there and he's thinking, this did not go the way I thought it was going to go. 
and I'm disappointed. In fact, I hoped that it would be different. You see, it's no small footnote when Jesus talks about, or when John talks about Joseph's faith being secret. And at this point, that secret faith just dissolved right in front of them. And I can't help but think this has happened to people all over this room, people that are listening right now. You put your hope in God, and you hoped that he would heal your grandmother of cancer, but then he didn't. And now you're left with the ashes. You hoped that he would fix your marriage by making your husband or your wife become the person that they're supposed to be, but he didn't. You hoped that you would get that big promotion and you prayed hard about it and you were really sincere with God about it and you didn't get what you hoped for and now you're standing there with dust and ashes thinking, what did I just do all of that for? And this is the moment where why you're following Jesus comes to the surface. Is he a genie? So that if I rub the lamp, he's going to give me three wishes and he better give me what I'm asking for or else I'm out of here. Because if that's the way that you're approaching faith, you're going to get let down time and time again. Or is he really the God of the universe who controls all things and has a plan for your life and his plan might not be your plan? You see, this happened to me. This happens to every strong Christian that I know. There's a moment where your plans for your life don't equal God's plans for your life. And I was a sergeant in the army. I absolutely loved what I was doing. That's all I want to do for the rest of my life. I wanted them to force me out of the army just being a crusty old ranger sergeant. And then there was a moment where God threw me a curveball that I wasn't expecting and I didn't ask for. And he started to point me towards ministry. I remember coming home to Dawn and saying, I feel like God is calling me into the ministry. And she said, I don't want that. That's not what I signed up for. And I said, I don't want it either. I didn't sign up for it either, but I don't think we get a choice in this matter. Either he is king and in charge or he's not. And sometimes you're going to hope real hard that God is going to give you the thing that you're praying for and you don't get it. And right now, I'm convinced that's where Joseph is. And all that he hoped for, all that he believed in, is just crumbled around him. And he's saying, well, the best I can do for that guy now, I hoped that he was going to drive out Israel, or Rome. I hoped that he was going to rescue Israel, but he didn't. So the best I can do for that guy is at least give him the burial that he deserves. And Joseph shows up on the scenes, and Joseph does something amazing. Now, there's a second guy who shows up on the scenes. The Bible talks about him today. His name is Nicodemus. And if you're familiar with John, way back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus has showed up one other time. You would think by now we would hear a lot about Nicodemus, but we don't. He shows up in John chapter 3 late at night because he's afraid also. And he shows up here. And what happens here is that Nicodemus decides, I'm going to give him the burial that he deserves. So Nicodemus shows up with some spices. Now get this, 75 Roman pounds in John's day is the equivalent of 30 kilograms, 65 pounds of myrrh, which is very expensive. It's a spice 
that kind of smells like candlewood mixed with perfume. I'm telling you, what Nicodemus just did is showed up with his life savings. Because this is the quantity of spice that an entire country would use to anoint the body of their king who just passed away. This is the equivalent of a royal burial. And Nicodemus shows up with some spices. Apparently, he and Joseph of Arimathea know each other. And they take that body off of the cross and they start to take care of Jesus' body. And they're going to treat him like a king. They're going to give him the king's burial. Now, they wrap his body up in some strips of cloth, and usually what they would do is press those spices inside the cloth. They would lay the body in a tomb, but this was a very temporary burial in Jewish customs. Everybody got this temporary burial. That spice was there just to mask the spell the smell, because it's going to get nasty inside that tomb. And at some point when the body has fully decomposed, then we'll go back in there, we'll get the bones, put them in a stone sarcophagus, and that's where the final resting place of the body will be. These spices were just there temporarily. Do you see the parallels between the humble Christmas birth of Jesus and the humble funeral of Jesus. There's almost no one around when he's born. There's another Joseph back at the birth, his Mary's husband, and Joseph doesn't have much money, so they, they wrap his body up in strips of cloth as a baby, and they lay him in a borrowed manger. They wrap his body up in strips of cloth. After he's dead, they lay him in a borrowed tomb. There's some guests that show up, and they present some gifts, and one of those gifts that they present is myrrh, the same spice that we're reading about that they anoint his body with. And he's got a humble beginning, He's got a humble end, and everything in the middle looks like this guy is insignificant. And you and I who live 2,000 years after the fact, we know what's coming next. But Nicodemus didn't. In fact, when Nicodemus shows up on the scenes for the first time in John chapter 3, he's got some questions. Because he said, Jesus, I've been listening to your sermons and I've been watching you, and I'm seeing miracles that I know cannot be done by anybody but God. There must be something special about you. And then in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus just cuts him off right in the middle of a sentence and says, Nicodemus, stop. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus, who is a scholar, a Bible expert, and a theologian, says, What? What do you mean by being born again, Jesus? And Jesus explains spiritual birth from physical birth. All of us have had one birth, that physical birth that started your heart beating for the first time, but you were also born into sin. And until you experience a second birth, a spiritual birth, you're dead in your sins and you've got no hope for heaven. And Nicodemus is scratching his head saying, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. And then Jesus uses this analogy. He says, Nicodemus... You remember that Bible story from the Old Testament where the serpents were in the camp of Israel and they were biting people and they were dying from this sickness of the serpent's venom? 
Well, my people have been bit by the serpent of sin. They have the poison of sin coursing through their veins, and they have to be rescued. And then Jesus uses this language, just like Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up and basically give his life so that sin can be dealt with once and for all. And Jesus will go on to say later on in John that when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw sinners from all over the planet to myself because they'll see me, they'll see that cross, and they'll recognize that's the only way that my sin can be dealt with. And now Nicodemus is at the foot of the cross handling this body. And I want to ask you, what's going through Nicodemus's mind? Did he sit there and say, I really believe that guy was the son of God. I mean, I, I had a conversation with him and he told me about his mission on earth to rescue humanity and now he's dead. And because Nicodemus is a Bible scholar, because he's a theologian, I gotta imagine that he's sitting there and he's thinking, I don't understand this, God. If he really was your son, how could you let this happen to your son? Why would he, of all the people on the planet, have to go through what he just went through? This doesn't make any sense to me. But I kind of want to ask you at this point, does Nicodemus believe? Has this man been born again? What do you think? Okay, nobody has an answer. Hey, how, how many of you really think this guy has been radically changed by Jesus? He's been born again. Well, let's just put it this way. At this point, he puts his life and his life savings on the line. I know he's already dead. Can't do anything to change that. But I can give him a proper burial. So I'm going to give... I'm going to go out and buy 65 pounds today, 30 kilograms of precious spices, which would have probably been his entire life savings. And when he shows up to help Joseph of Arimathea, he's put it all on the line, at least give this brother the burial that he deserves. And Nicodemus, I am convinced, is confused by the plan of God. Anybody ever been there? My God... I don't get it. God, this doesn't make sense. Not only does this not make sense, but this just seems wrong, God. Like, why would you, if you really have all power, why would you let this happen? I'm convinced that's what's rolling through the back of Nicodemus's mind right now. Joseph is confused. Nicodemus is frustrated. And there's some other players at the cross. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that the women, although they didn't help prepare the body, they were watching where this happened because they're going to go back after Passover and they're going to go take care of Jesus' body. There's the Roman governor who's a player at this point. There's the Jewish high priest. There's the Jewish crowd. They've all gone. They went home. They're all preparing for Passover when the sun goes down tonight. But the major player in this scene is silent. We don't hear anything from God at this moment about why he is allowing this to happen to his son, Jesus. But there's another player here. And this one, you really can't miss. It's you. And I'm being quite literal here because if you were with us last week, John, who's writing this book, says, 
I watched that man die. I am an eyewitness to what I'm writing to you. And then John uses this language. I wrote this down so that you would believe that he really is the son of God. And at this point, I realize this is going to be really hard for people who have grown up in the church to do. At this point, I want you to pause for just a second and imagine you don't know what's happening next. You're reading the Bible for the very first time. You've heard the man's message. You've seen his miracles. He's done things that no human being on earth has ever done before. And you've heard him say, my mission is to seek and to save those that are lost. And now he's dead and they're putting him in the ground. And you have to ask yourself, if I was standing at the cross with Joseph and Nicodemus right now, what would be going through my mind? I used to think to myself, if I could go back to any moment in history, I would go back to this moment, and I would watch this moment live with my own eyes. And then it occurred to me, no, I don't want that. Because if I was seeing this for the first time, like everybody else was seeing this for the first time, chances are I would do what the rest of the disciples did. Where are those guys right now? Because they're nowhere in the picture. In fact, all of those faithful followers are gone, and we only have Joseph and Nicodemus left. And then it occurred to me, maybe this isn't the moment that I would want to stand and watch with my own eyes. Maybe the moment that I really wish I could see is coming a couple of days later. See, you and I live on the other side of this, and we already have the end of the story, which is hard for us because it makes you rush to what happens next, but you can't miss the confusion and the disappointment that all of his followers, every one of his followers, would have experienced at this moment saying, God, I don't get it. God, this doesn't make sense. In fact, not only does this not make sense, this just looks wrong. Like, you don't love me, you don't care, you're not in charge, or else something like this wouldn't have happened. And none of them could see God's plan unfolding. John even uses that language. We didn't get it until after his resurrection. That's when it finally made sense to us for the first time. This hasty burial is all thrown together because we got to get in there, get this body prepared, throw him in the tomb, and get out of there. And we have to ceremonially cleanse ourselves before the sun goes down, or we can't take part in the Passover. Listen to this, y'all. Passover is a really, really big deal to John. I'll prove it to you. At this point, John has mentioned Passover, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 11, chapter 13, chapter 16, chapter 18, chapter 19. Passover is a really big deal to John. He mentions it more than anybody else in the New Testament. But check this out. This is the last time John will talk about Passover. From this point forward, John doesn't mention Passover because apparently Passover is no big deal for him anymore. You see, from this point forward, I think John recognizes God has sent his lamb. God has given his Passover lamb. 
And now that God has given his Passover lamb, we don't need an animal sacrifice anymore. That stuff doesn't matter anymore. The events at the cross are all that matter for me, for my soul, and for the rest of eternity. This is the moment where things change for John. And John says, I'm writing this so that they would change for you too. So that you would see, so that you would believe and that your life would be changed. I was praying about this sermon this week and I was thinking, I don't know if there's a way that we could do in 2022 something like what Joseph and Nicodemus did for Jesus. Like how would you honor him today the way that these two men showed up and honored Jesus? And then the only thing that came to my mind is that you and I would love him and serve him just like he commanded us to. You see, the kind of language that I'm using right now is honoring Jesus with your life, which means serving and also sharing what you believe about Jesus with other people. Let me listen to this language. Jesus said to his disciples, you know, when you fed me and clothed me and took care of me when I was sick and when you visited me in prison and you get me, gave me a cold water to drink and they were like, wait a second, Jesus, we didn't do any of that stuff for you. And he said, oh yeah, you did. When you took care of somebody that was poor and needy, you were actually doing that for me. You were doing for me today what Joseph and Nicodemus did for me. And Jesus says, when you did this for the least of people, you were actually doing this for me. So I, I'm going to put a challenge in front of you. Would you go out and do literally what Jesus commanded you this week? Would you go out and serve somebody this week? Just in a very natural very practical way. Would you go honor Jesus by serving somebody, but serving them for a very specific reason, to earn the right to share with them what Jesus has done for you and how he can do the exact same thing for them too. That, I believe, is the only appropriate way to honor what happened at the cross. You see, maybe somebody is listening today and you need to take a next step. Actually, you need to take the first next step in your spiritual journey. What you need to do is turn control of your soul, of your life, of your money, of your uh, time, all of it. Turn it over to the King of Kings. Turn it over to Jesus today. In just a second, I'm going to pray for you. We hope you enjoyed this message. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and to stay in touch by joining our email list through the link in the show notes. Have a great week.